Hello and welcome to the November 2009 podcast from Le Monde Diplomatique. My name is George Miller, and each month I present an in-depth interview with one of the contributors to the paper. This month, my guest is Dr Patrick Porter of the Defence Studies Department at King's College London. Patrick recently published a book called Military Orientalism, Eastern War Through Western Eyes, and his article in the November issue shows that seeing the Taliban and Al-Qaeda as civilizations from different galaxies from us as one former US officer put it, is to seriously underestimate the extent to which they can change, adapt and adopt new strategies. So the big question is, what place does understanding the enemy's culture have in war? I asked Patrick first how he became interested in this field. Like a lot of academics, I sometimes wonder what I'd be writing about if 9-11 hadn't happened. I guess the shock of that, of that atrocity in, uh, in New York and Washington uh, really drew me to this this radical encounter would look like a radical encounter between very different kinds of enemies, uh, sort of a cultural shock, um, whether it's what's happened since then, of televised beheadings or suicide bombings or human shields. There seems to be this fascination in the link between how people fight and who they are, they are their identity, if you like. And the notion of fighting against a culturally very alien enemy is an incredibly powerful one. And it also could be a very dangerous one. Westerners over time have debated about themselves through visions of the enemy, whether it's the ancient Persian despots all the way through to the Taliban. It's a little, a little bit like the, the history of, of, the, of the first encounter between the Spanish conquistadors and the, and the Aztecs. One arrives um, wearing armour over their torsos, killing from a distance with cannon and crossbows, and the host of Mesoamerica looks like a primitive who ca- cannibalizes their victims, while the enemy looks like they fight dirty because they use these ranged weapons. And there's something about that encounter between these different worlds which, which drew me to it. And I have a suspicion that after Iraq particularly, when the ideas of the Bush administration have become so, wi- so widely disputed, for example, rejected the idea that we can remake the world in America's image, if you like. We can alter the whole condition of the Islamic world in order to protect ourselves. That idea has become deeply unfashionable. But I think there is a danger in embracing the opposite idea, the kind of Orientalism, the notion of a primordial and timeless enemy. Yeah, I mean, the shift, I suppose, is from thinking they're just like us to thinking they're not at all like us. Well, that's right. I mean, the the reaction, in some ways, the idea or the the theology that grows under Bush is that We've been attacked by radically different enemies who have come out of a crucible of religious extremism and dictatorship and poverty. And we can actually make ourselves safer by altering the whole political nature of the Arab Islamic world. Mm. So in other words, they're not like us, but if we just insert the tip of the spear, we'll discover that they actually are all secretly deep down Ohio Democrats or Republicans waiting to get out. And actually, yeah. we've, we've seen how much more tricky it is than that. And hence the, hence the temptation to talk about how essentially different people are. Originally, I suppose, in America's wars, it didn't matter so much to them the degree of cultural difference because technological supremacy came first, didn't it? So culture could sort of follow on behind. But what you write about in the article is a shift whereby culture is now center stage. Yes, this is, I should urge that this isn't the, the first time this kind of pattern has has been seen, and, mm. and certainly not in American history. Mm. There was a, a turn back in the midst of the Vietnam War to kind of understanding the local human terrain, as it's come to be called. There was yeah. a movement to use anthropology and social science and cultural knowledge to actually understand the Japanese enemy, understanding how you can get them, to, how you can get a fanatical enemy, as it were, to surrender. So there is actually a, a pattern to be found. It, it repeats itself in different ways over time. 
In the article, you write in particular about the Taliban and yes. how the attempt to sort of understand the Taliban culturally has resulted in a sort of essentialized portrait of a pre-modern, almost extraterrestrial culture. Yes, I have to say that that's right. That's that's one danger. It doesn't have to be that way. And I think, in principle, I think that actually the embrace of culture by the U.S. military is potentially a very good thing. It is part of the U.S. military reforming itself, as well as a wider shift in in our kind of public life to kind of appreciate the complexities of dealing with other people. It's what we call the human terrain program or the human terrain system of, of actually weaponizing culture and putting anthropologists and social scientists in with the military and getting the military themselves to think harder about the nature of the environment they're operating in. It, it also grows out of another project known as the Joint Improvised Explosive Device Defeat Organization, which was trying to understand the sociology of IEDs and, and tracking the movement between financiers and bomb builders and bomb layers. I think this in some ways is a very good discipline in, t in terms of actually realising that technolog technological supremacy does not deliver everything in warfare. It may deliver battlefield lethality, it may keep, make you very dangerous, but it doesn't necessarily result in desirable political outcomes. So that's ultimately what we mean by victory in war. Victory is about securing mm. political outcomes. And one of the dangers of the 90s was this hubris that with pre precision munitions, with uh, information technology, with you know satellite that could gaze over the battle space, that America could, could become this unconquerable, invincible overdog. And this is actually mm. a reaction against that. The danger is that we move to a, a vision of, of the Taliban as what they look like on camera for Time mm. magazine, kind of snarling primitive theocrats or tribal warriors who are frozen in time as prisoner of their own customs. And of course, they sometimes like to encourage this idea, as one Afghan said to the uh, British press, I think, in 2001, on the eve of invasion in, in autumn, he said, the Americans love Pepsi-Cola, but we love death. And in some respects, it's a very good way of projecting fear and dread of the enemy by making themselves look primitive and savage. But actually, that's not always how it is, that despite the fact that the Taliban do preach a brand of medieval nostalgia, a, a desire to return to a, pure, a purely Islamic society, as they see it, we can see that actually in practice they are realists of a sort. They rewrite their rules and their codes as they go. Yeah, I mean, we're not looking at the Taliban through a one-way mirror, are we? The, no. the, the, the gaze is going in both directions, isn't it? Exactly. That's part of their own propaganda. And one of the, one of the tricky things, I think, with studying culture, particularly in the, within the turbulence and chaos of war, is being able to discriminate between what people say about themselves, how they think about themselves, and what they actually do. They can be quite different. The Taliban, it turns out, from, on a whole range of fronts, from the use of music to mm. narcotics to media operations, to suicide bombing actually have rewritten their world rules, sometimes reinterpreted stories from the Quran in order to justify radical shifts in policy. So, for example, they were once firmly believed that narcotics were sinful and destructive. Now they present themselves as a protector of the narco economy. They once regarded suicide bombing not only as wrong and, and, and foreign, but actually as something that was unmanly. It was a cowardly form of warfare. Mm. Now they try and find ways of justifying it. They once banned music. They now produce musical propaganda. It almost sounds like Western rap music. They uh, once were known as the great technophobes. They were the ones who smashed up the TVs and that sort of thing, as well as mm. kind of waging a cultural warfare against um, other religious artifacts like the, the, the uh, Buddhist statues. Well, they now, having gone from saying that the image of the human on our media is, is idolatry, they now um, actually present, do interviews. They conduct interviews and they actually have a very sophisticated media sort of operations outfit. And they have things like embedded journalists, so I mean, it actually comes down to the way they actually behave and uh, they actually find very flexible ways of using their culture as a weapon. Yeah, I mean, you write, one of the very striking little details in your article, you write about 
the Taliban going basically for media training from Al-Qaeda's video production arm. And that, that was a sort of astonishing little sort of insight, I thought, there. Into That's right. I mean, there's, there's an ongoing argument, isn't there, about the relationship between Iraq and Afghanistan as two theatres of war. And we often think of them as separate. And that um, actually the criticism of the Iraq war often made was that it was a diversion and that actually it was taking our mind off. But of course, once you fight a war in Iraq, the enemy can find ways of benefiting from that as well. There is a kind of dynamism here, and the, and the Taliban, um, as I picked up from reading some great work by Steve Tatham, mm. um, actually uh, had representatives in Iraq watching how al-Qaeda produce media images and propaganda. So neither the, the Taliban nor al-Qaeda is monolithic and fixed. It's fluid, and it's, it's got a pragmatic sense of, of what it, how it wants to go about achieving its aims. I, th I think that's right. I mean, we have to balance that against what we've also seen, which is that I think ultimately Al-Qaeda in particular, as a kind of radical religious terrorist network, is itself ultimately quite self-defeating. It has, has found very clever ways to alienate Muslims quite radically, even in places where America is not loved, for example, in Anbar or in Saudi Arabia uh, or in, in, indeed in Gaza. But at the same time, they have shown a certain kind of agility at being able to make changes to the way they fight. Uh, for example, I mean, what is, what is one of the main points of disagreement between us, as it were, the liberal modern West mm. and Al-Qaeda is the position of women, the employment of women. And the employment of women was re once regarded as something of a taboo. Well, now they employ women <laughs> as, as mm. warriors, and they find cultural religious justifications to do that. Mm. And it's also quite misleading, as some scholars argue, that Al-Qaeda's violence is, is not guided by any strategy. It's designed to make a point for its own sake that the violence is an end, not a means. It's a way of registering a protest to the rage against a fallen world. Or Actually, if you look at what well, at least a lot of the al-Qaeda um, higher echelons say, that actually there is a sense of a strategy and a sense that they need to actually achieve political aims. And they, after all, they do read a lot of Western strategic thought and Chinese strategic thought. They read Mao. Um, they read fourth-generation warfare theory. They read uh, Clausewitz, as we've discovered. Mm. Um, their libraries are full of guerrilla warfare theory. And of course, there's a sense in which we're also trying to learn from them. You mentioned earlier that there is something positive in the US military's beginning to embrace sort of anthropological thinking. So yes. is, is your point that it's simply not subtle enough, it simply hasn't gone far enough, it simply hasn't permeated far enough to have a positive effect rather than that it's, or is the mod, do you think the model is, is somehow flawed at that deeper level? I think, I think my point is that Culture should always be something that makes us nervous, a, a word that makes us nervous. It's something you can't afford to ignore, but neither can you afford to worship it. Uh, the danger of t talking about culture is it's so easy to slip into a historical myth. Mm. It's so easy to believe that other people are prisoners of their own culture are somehow timeless. It's so easy to believe that Afghanistan in, 20, in 2009 is the same place it was in 1984 or 1949 or 1840s. That's one danger, that actually you can embrace the false model of culture and, and you miss the pragmatic and flexible and agile nature of some of our enemies. And if you do that, you, you don't know the enemy. In fact, you profoundly misunderstand the enemy. Well, I think what's also important is that whilst it's good that militaries educate themselves and study culture, it depends on what kind of way you're doing it, you always need to take into account, as I say, change as well as continuity. Culture isn't just a conservative force or a force of endurance. It's a force of powerful ideas that can be harnessed to change. And that's particularly the case in a mad, turbulent war for people's hearts and minds, like in Afghanistan. But the Taliban do try and set themselves up as a counter-state that offers some kind of modern services. They're not just a force of reaction, at least in the way they behave, as much as they do commit terrible atrocities. But they present themselves as providers as well as predators. War is a, is a thing of friction and chance and chaos. It's, it's a beast that's very hard to control and predict. Now, let me give you a, a very brief example. In 2006, Israel invaded Lebanon. 
this was an IDF, a very sophisticated institution, if you like, that had tried to reform itself mm. to deal with complex wars of armed nation building or fighting guerrillas in a foreign country. They had occupied the West Bank and Gaza. They had taught themselves about policing uh, in places where they were not welcome. They had tried to de-emphasize classical combat to a certain extent to focus on the whole art, what we might now call art of counterinsurgency mm. or of keeping order abroad or keeping order in places where you're trying to occupy and uh, project yourself. Invading Lebanon, arguably, as, as we've discovered in particular in the excellent work of Stephen Biddle, some of these assumptions were wrong because Hezbollah, this kind of part political, part government, part military movement, this part parliamentary, part military outfit, had actually reformed itself as well. So that the shock was that Israel discovered Hezbollah fighting not as the classical stereotypical Arab guerrillas hitting and running and melting away yeah. in the face of Israeli armor blows and Israeli air power, but actually people who could stand and fight. And they looked much more like almost a pseudo-state fighting than a kind of a classical Arab guerrilla. So we need, we, we need to embrace cult culture in a very careful way that acknowledges these kinds of shocks and ruptures that actually, instead of viewing culture as a script that people are bound to, mm. it's much better to use a different metaphor, culture um, as a weapon or as a set, as an arsenal of weapons that can be used, abused in very skillful ways. So when the US military dusts off some old volume which purports to represent the Arab mind, there's a danger that you're, you're dealing with something which is outdated and is, is going to be misleading, do more harm than good. That's absolutely right. And I, I'd go even further than that uh, on that point and say that actually the, the embrace of culture is not always an enlightened technique or movement. It, it, can, it can come from much mm. darker impulses. There's a dark side to this that we do know notion, that notions of Arab pride, the notions of Islamic honor, the notions of the, the fact that the notion that the dogs were particularly humiliated mm. in Arab cultures, the, these kind of received ideas that were promoted in books about the Arab mind, these ideas were used as justification for some of the torture practices that actually if culture is weaponized, it can be used mm. as a, a very oppressive and reactionary thing in itself. Now, Patrick, your article ends really very starkly. You say we may never banish the mythologized Oriental from our consciousness and yes. you compare it to the fear of death and, and darkness. And that's, that's, that's rather portentous for the, for the outcomes of America's engagement in Afghanistan and Iraq, isn't it? Yeah, there is, there is a, I do, I do arrive at quite a skeptical point. It seems that as I tried to study this, that these ideas just keep coming up. They're not just, of course, American or British. They're the Russian ideas. They're, they've, they've, they've fulfilled a range of... They've come into a range of cultures. And, of course, there is such a thing as Occidentalism, where, mm. where non-Westerners stereotype the West in, in very foolish ways, as, mm. as not, nothing more weak capitalists who uh, can't take the heat of battle. We know what happened to that idea in the 20th century. The point I would make is that we can't hope to ever end this danger, that there will always be a silhouette on the horizon, if you like, that, that it's too powerful partly because we debate about ourselves through it's a way in which we define ourselves. If we're talking about the enemy as this primitive oriental other, it's also a way of saying what we are as modern, rational, and strategic. What I would try and say is that we can continually try and guard against it and quarantine it and try and civilize the impulse. We will always have stereotypes lurking in our, in our consciousness, but we can try and use evidence to battle the stereotypes rather than the other way around. And we can always... If you like, George Orwell once said that... that uh, the point of being civilized is not to remove your prejudices, it's to be in a constant argument with them. I think that's, that's the kind of process we should be aiming for. And I suppose implicitly it also argues for the involvement of people like you, academics who study these cultural questions, in the business of, of policy making and you know, ex explaining what's going on to people who actually you know, execute policy on the, in the real world. I think there's always, it's always good to have a healthy dialogue between militaries, governments and academics. 
of course, you have to be aware that there's always that so what question. Mm. One of the things I'm trying to do is to say that this can be a good thing, but it also has great danger. We, we, we also need to learn from militaries. It's not just a process of mm. militaries having to be educated by other people. Militaries also have a profound degree of their own mm. intellectual discovery, their own uh, data, their own work they bring back from these countries and actually can educate us. They can actually challenge us. Academics also need to be taught. I think it's easy to fall prey to an idea that um, that it's, it's militaries are the ones who are, who are behind the times that actually academics are some of the people who are actually being some of these ideas about the time mm. of Oriental. But mm. Very intelligent, very sophisticated scholars um, can fall prey to this, and therefore we also need to be listening to what the militaries have to tell us. I was talking to Patrick Porter about his article in the November issue of Le Monde Diplomatique. You can find that online at mondediplo.com and in the print edition. And online you'll also find a complete archive of the paper, available to subscribers, as well as other content, blogs, maps, pictures and podcasts. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. My thanks to Patrick Porter for taking part, and to you for listening. I hope you'll join me again next month. Until then, goodbye.